0: Let's just do a demo now. So we're going to go to a clip. Uh, we're going to take a 30 second clip of this podcast and use Camp AI to convert it to Mandarin for the viewers to hear it right here, right now. All right, here
1: it goes. 一个公司也是封闭
0: All right, we're live. Ak, thanks for coming on. Uh, you have a uh, AI product, uh, Cam AI, which uh, essentially dubs your content in every language. So we're going to do a, an example here later in this episode of you know us speaking in Mandarin, but uh, you know the whole visuals and everything. Really excited to see that. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, man.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Brian, for having me on. Uh, you know, I've been watching your your podcast, and it's great to be on one <laughs> now. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, I don't know, uh, I think I could kick it off by maybe talking a little bit about what uh, CamBI is and a little bit about my background. Um, so at CamBI, we're essentially developing the world's most powerful zero-shot dubbing AI. Um, I think it's, it's kind of our thesis that a lot of the modern world slash internet was developed with English speakers in mind. And we're kind of redesigning it for, for the world uh, as of today. Um, and in doing so, uh, it kind of builds on the years of research that I and the rest of the team have been doing in speech and language. We've created two foundational models and um in, in speech and translation. And on top of that, now we've built this uh this AI layer uh that offers uh kind of a very dynamic. Uh, ability to dub any kind of video into multiple languages uh, with a specific focus on some of the most lowest resource languages. So ones that don't have a lot of data uh, digitally. Um, So yeah. Talk about that a little bit. You were
0: saying like Malayalam is a Southern Indian language, and we were talking about some other... languages that i haven't heard of before so i I can imagine that there's not a lot of like as you're saying lower resource languages meaning there's not a lot of content on the internet whether it's text or video content in those languages
2: right right so it's actually you know the way i would want to define it for for myself or the context of this this talk is um a lower resource language not necessarily isn't spoken by fewer people like malayalam is spoken by a lot of people um, but it is true that perhaps it does not have as much digital data as something like Spanish would. Now, the problem that has existed is that more and more content, as it has been developed in languages like English that are higher resource to have a lot of digital data on the Internet, uh, Speakers are not so fluent speakers of English and and people who don't speak the uh, language at all, often miss out in a lot of things that are developed in English. So, you know, high quality education, health, sports entertainment. But that's just like kind of the tip of the iceberg. And it's it's just kind of a a, a problem that keeps growing when you think about it. Right. Uh, There's more and more data in one particular language, and then there's more content in that language. Uh, so that grows, but you know, the one that doesn't have any data just never has any data. Um, and so the problem that we really want to fix is how do you take content in a high resource language and convert it to low resource language, which is a pretty fundamental problem that not many classical models can solve. Well, of course, there's some open, re- open source research Ongoing, some of the, the big tech is also focusing on, um, you know, making technology and and the kind of digital age more inclusive. But there's not really something that just does it. And with Cambi, we're hoping that uh, with some of these foundational models that we're creating that focus on this transfer of high resource to lower resource, we can provide essentially a backbone on which a lot of creators uh enterprises and general internet users um can watch content or consume any kind of content in their preferred language uh and really really democratize and build an internet that's for everybody and not for somebody who speaks a particular language or or doesn't. Um, so that's that's kind of in a nutshell the real focus. And um our research has re- really, really focused on a high resource to low resource because uh, traditionally, you know, it's it's easy to get from English to Spanish, both being very high resource, uh, like models, like uh, even even like a Google Translate or a GPT today can do that really well. But we'll struggle really, really hard on some of the lower
1: resource languages.
0: Interesting. Uh, yeah, because I use, you know google translate all the time for different things and it you know typically works pretty well but i can't say that i've ever tried to translate you know malayalam or or um, yeah. you know like you said as a lower resource language typically it's like german french spanish uh right. you know something like that maybe hindi uh
1: right.
0: something that's pretty you know way more common right uh interesting uh so oh were you gonna say something
2: yeah. I mean, the thing there is like, there is in, in video dubbing, for example, um, which we are focused on, which kind of our technology is focusing more and more. Even when you get to something like higher resource, like a Spanish or a Hindi, um, a Google translate sentence by sentence might do really well. But it's interesting that you bring that up because let's talk about this podcast, which I guess we're going to attempt to, you know, repurpose a clip of in Mandarin. But uh, the English you and I are speaking is not necessarily English that is easily translatable. Uh, while talking, of course, we understand each other perfectly. But if somebody was to, I guess, transcribe out this podcast uh, and try to read it, there would be a lot of bro- broken sentences, half thoughts, coming back to things. And you know, if, if you naively try to translate that, it's actually very hard. Even something like a Google Translate or a GPT today, even if you try to do it in a higher resource language, it'll just come up with garbage. And that's not even to talk about things like idioms that we use or, uh, you know, things like those. So uh, there's very, very kind of interesting problems even within high resource languages that some of the foundational models at Cam- CAMBI are, are able to solve. So. It's not just the you know we're not just serving um, kind of low resource languages, but it's kind of thinking about fundamentally what it takes to convert meaning in one language to the to the other in in a way that classical like NMT models as we call them uh,
0: cannot handle. Interesting yeah so uh let's let's just do a demo now so we're gonna go to a clip uh we're gonna take a thirty second clip of this podcast and use Cambay i to convert it to Mandarin for the viewers to hear it right here right now
1: all right here it goes
0: 在人工智能时代,一个公司也是封闭,原本就一样会认为他们落后。Cindy, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, We just went through the the two clips. We went through the English version of the clip and then the Mandarin version of the clip. Uh, So for the listeners, uh, Cindy is a friend of mine and she is a native Mandarin speaker born in China, uh, lives here in Philadelphia now. Uh, Cindy, I would love to get your uh, perspective on what you just heard and uh, the quality of that translation that we just listened to. Uh,
3: Thanks, Brian, for uh, inviting me to hear uh, this like a translation. Overall, I think it did a good job. Uh, I understand, especially uh, your partner, you know, the uh, when he speak uh, Mandarin is quite clear. Uh, and for your part is I didn't uh, get 100% at the first time. Uh, so I uh, replayed the second time, third time, and I totally understand after, you know, three times. Uh, I feel uh, some word didn't really uh, translate or pronounce very well. For example, I know you guys talk about Apple company, right? But when Apple translate English, it's 苹果. So uh, when you have accent, to speak 苹果. So it's hard for the consumer to understand um, did it try they to also, translate
0: uh, like the word "apple"? Did it try to translate it like the fruit apple, or like how did it how did it do that? Like it's the same
3: same word, like a fruit apple, same word, but just like um, it maybe I just feel the pronounce pronunciation is not quite standard, so it's kind of hard for to pick up like in you know the first time. Uh, also, there's a word like um, ho. Um, so I think uh, translate English will be like uh you know far behind you know uh, I didn't uh, understand the, the translation uh, so um, so after like two or three times uh, when i played the clip so i i got i got it i kind of understand so yeah i will say overall the software you know uh, did good job i will give uh, a 70 if if you give, if you ask me to uh to score it, I will say 70, and um, just some words pres- pronunciation need, need improve, and I, al- I also can see um, uh, the flow, you know, it's good, and a very, very good thing for me is, you know, is, is from your voice, you know, so the translation from your voice, so I think that's a really, really amazing part, feels like you speak, uh, you know, Mandarin, you know, and then with accent, so I feel that's really cool. But if you use another way to think, if you speak a really, really good Mandarin, probably people feel like weird, you know? So so I will say that, you know, the software, it'll be okay, have some accent, you know, just maybe some words, you know, they can improve the pronunciation, yeah.
0: Awesome, that's really good uh, in, info about it. Uh, and I'm curious too, like in, in China, like if somebody's talking about the company Apple, would they Mm -hmm. say like the English word, since it's a noun, would they like call it the English word apple or would they actually translate the word apple into Mandarin when they talk? Very
3: good question. Uh, They will translate it in Mandarin. Uh, Apple say yeah.
0: Okay, interesting. Well, uh, thanks so much. It's so awesome to have you come on here and and talk about uh, what your thoughts are uh, and give feedback. Uh, I really appreciate your time today, Cindy.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much, Brian. You know, it's very nice to share my thoughts. Yeah.
0: All right, man. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I, you know, obviously I brushed up on my Mandarin here for this episode. <laughs> so you can see that, yeah. you know, I'm fl- speaking fluent Mandarin. Uh, right. Just just kidding. This is the result of uh, of Cambai. So, so walk us through like that clip that we just listened to. What, what was happening there? Can you tell us kind of the gist of it?
2: Yeah, perfect. So Brian, one of the things we have really focused on is making this technology applicable to a wide variety of applications. And now some of the traditional AI dubbing or whoever's tried to tackle this problem, to do it really well, you need a lot of data for a particular speaker to clone their voice well, even in one language, the language that they're speaking. And it's an even harder problem to transfer that cross-lingually to another language. So as you saw, even with a few seconds of us just speaking, the AI was able to completely differentiate voices, pick up and not only clone your voice um, in, you know, I guess understand your speaking style, but do it in a completely different language that you don't even speak. So this is what we refer to as zero shot cross-lingual cloning. uh, And we have one foundational model that Cambia is building upon. Uh, Why this is super important, it kind of piggy banks uh, off of the low resource problem, right? Low data. It's important because when you think about practical scenarios, say you're talking about a bit, uh, a movie uh, or some kind of general video, or let's say uh, there's a YouTuber that's doing an interview, but three people come in and start talking as well. To be able to handle such scenarios You need a general enough AI model that can understand different speakers, one, and also be able to understand speaker identity given very less data. So let's say there was a movie that only had two actors. Maybe you could make a claim that, okay, we're gonna scrape all the data of those actors and train it over weeks and then have them speak multiple languages. That's that's possible. And there has been enough research on that um, to make that possible. However, in a movie, there's more than two actors. At any point, somebody could be screaming in the background. Uh, you know, a third background actor could come in or, you know, uh, maybe a barista could be giving him coffee. She says hi. To be able to handle all this, you need to be able to create technology that works off of very low data. So that's what we mean by zero shot. Um, and yeah, with with just maybe 10 to 15 seconds, our AI is able to figure out the speaker identity and convert it into, you know, any language. In fact, it is getting so good that even if you were to invent a new language tomorrow, uh, we could have you speak that language. So it's very agnostic to the actual language being converted into, uh, which makes it even more
1: versatile. Um, What was...
0: uh what was the Star Trek language? It was like the Klingon or something. Uh, could you guys? <laughs> <laughs> could you guys translate that? <laughs> I, I
2: think. I think the goal is that. Well, CambiAI's goal is that eventually, whatever language um, there is, we should and would want to be able to translate into. So, of course, right now we do around seventy-five languages, but our goal is to get to 200, 300, any language that is the lowest of the low resource. Help everybody come onto the internet. So yeah, I mean, if uh if people start picking up the StarTech language, it would be our moral duty to get on it and, and make sure it's possible <laughs> through our platform and AI.
0: Let's let's dive into the tech on this, man. So uh like what what are you guys like what's under the hood? Are you guys building your own models? Are you using like some open AI stuff? You know, how does the tech work uh, on your platform?
2: Yeah, so I think um naively when you think about this. Uh, if you go to any master student or PhD or even an undergrad or really anybody who tinkers with technology, <laughs> it would be easily understandable for them to imagine how a system like this should work, right? Uh, you have speech in one language, uh, you could transcribe it, then you have text in that language, then you translate it, and then you voice it over again, right? Right. Um, So that is like a naive way to do it. And the problem is that every stage of that transfer of information or conversion of information type, in my mind, and I guess this this would be true for anybody if you ask them, it's kind of information loss at each point, right? It's kind of like if you rub two things together, uh, the heat goes away as loss. And what Cambi attempts to do is prevent this kind of lossy conversion. We, with our foundational models, we're able to preserve context a lot better. So let's say there's multiple speakers, they're speaking idiomatically, they're saying just a lot of stuff which might not even make sense when written down and read out of context, right? Um, so yes, we are creating our own foundational models. One is in colloquial translation, and in the other is the zero shot. Uh, prosodic voice cloning uh, mechanism. So these are our two foundational models. And uh, kind of around this, we're using, again, proprietary techniques, but uh, less AI, more um, algorithmic uh, kind of thinking. Uh, one of the things that I, I, there has been significant research in this space of AI dubbing or multiple language conversion, etc. A new technique that's coming out very soon that we are also looking into and rapidly investigating and growing our AI and is speech to speech. So you don't need to convert a speech to text, a text to text, and then a text to speech. Um, you can. Is that now... what you're doing
0: now? You're going through that whole like cycle of voice to voice to text.
2: So, so we we are able to kind of leapfrog ahead, uh, and we're able to prevent some of that loss. Um, but now there are techniques speech to speech, uh, which, you know, have been in open research and people are working on. Uh, I think Facebook uh, kind of published a few results on this as well for a few languages, but the ability to take speech, speech directly, which in our belief will be the technique that basically wins out um, as this field of AI dubbing and translation grows. Um, I think CamBI is in the position where we have discovered something extremely unique that we can do with kind of current state of the art, uh, to have very high accuracy and pretty good results. Um, and as we develop more and more, us being a core AI research team, uh, you know, maybe if it's speech to speech next or God knows what next, we'll try to be in the areas that make, make sure that we have always state of the art results in, um, in anything that we productionize uh, so yeah right now I think I would I would call our technique a little bit of uh, a hybrid of both the kind of at the intersection we're graduating to something like speech to speech in the future which you know time will show if that is the right way to do things and, and possibly
1: it might be
0: I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. So in the video, how do you deal with like, you know, if. It takes a different amount of time to say a, to say a sentence uh, or to say a statement in one language versus another. And how do you deal with like mouth movements and, and timing like the body language up with the time that you know, yeah. if I'm pointing to something saying, you know over here, and then I'm like making sure that when I say over here and point at the same time in the video, yeah. how do you deal with all that stuff?
2: That's a great question. Uh, so I think, uh, like I said, right, naively, if you were to think about okay, speech to speech, text to text, text to speech. You would kill all of that, what you mentioned, right? How do you uh, account for cross lingual time sync as we phrase it? Let's say, you know, a sentence takes 10 seconds in English, takes shorter in Mandarin or another language. How do you compensate for that? So we've actually created proprietary algorithms to do and manage some of these artifacts. And it's not just cross lingual time sync, but also things like background score preservation. Uh, we do exceedingly well on content like sports, which is very, very difficult to dub. I mean, half the time in sports, like when when the commentator is shouting and screaming, you can't understand what they're saying in English. So <laughs> we're we're happy to have results that can demonstrate that we're able to uh, dub that kind of context or, or that kind of content, which goes to show the the level of contextual understanding. But In that case, you need things like background score preservation because audience cheering, the game hype, all that's important to preserve even in the other language, which most systems fail to do or don't do well. So, you know, AI dubbing, uh, people have looked at it as like, oh, you know, what's so hard in it? But it's exactly these minute things that you have to make absolutely perfect before it becomes anything near production quality. Um, things like lip movements, mouth movements, things like cross-lingual time sync, preserving background score, managing, um, you know, multiple speakers. You have to take many, many things into account, uh, before you can build a system that's robust enough to serve, um, even the easiest of use cases like, uh, uh, you know, educational videos or corporate training videos to do them really, really well. It's, It's a holistic understanding of the problem and you need to be able to spend a lot of time in it be able to check off all those boxes that a customer would say, yes, this is something that I'd be happy to put out. And uh, uh, it wouldn't seem like a robot speaking and it would actually make sense to my audience. They would be able to connect with it. And it would seem as realistic as possible for the price point that I have at the moment. Um, I do think that over time, this is just an art form in a sense that will require more and more refining as competitors come along. Um, different people will be able to solve different facets of this problem better. Uh, I think eventually um, there will be enough research and development in this space that I can definitely see the future being localized with the help of AI um, completely. and. Uh, us being able to scale information to everybody at a much more rapid rate than what's possible today with manual dubbing.
1: Um
2: So yeah, that's I think my two cents on it. That's how that's some of the things that we definitely take care of, um, and it's it's all proprietary stuff that we have kind of built ourselves slash built upon existing state of the
1: art. Um, so yeah,
0: cool. I might have missed it uh, when I asked you the question before, but uh, did you say you're actually training your own models at this point, or are you piggybacking on top of like existing open AI models or, you know, hugging face models or something, or uh, what's, what's your strategy there?
2: Yeah. So like I said, it's uh, you can kind of call it, like we have an ensemble technique end to end. Um, Some of these utilize uh, information and services from third-party APIs but a large majority of it that solves for the fundamental problems of low resource, zero shot, are our own models. I have my uh, handy GPU on this side training 24-7. Uh, so yeah, we 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 are training our own foundational models. We hope to make some of this available open source later in the year. Um, and also uh, some of these models available as developer APIs so that people can create um, as I mentioned, you know, the goal isn't to create like a, an AI dubbing tool, but really provide uh, kind of a backbone for the Internet to localize its content, which means that if we have models that really get the job done for some of these fundamental models, we think it's a great strategy and also a great opportunity for us to open source slash uh, release them as developer APIs for more people to build different types of localization tools or different kinds of AI dubbing tools for different use cases. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely a win-win there. Um, and the goal is that, yeah, with, with our two models, maybe three, uh, we're able to make them as available as possible to the general public.
0: Cool. Are you guys using like a vector database, something like Pinecone for uh, for data storage or how, how do you handle the, the storage of data?
2: Yeah so right now we're we're just using uh GCP we we got uh we got some of their credits so we're burning out through them uh but uh, yeah eventually we would need to move some more mature data lakes and data warehouses so uh that's that's further down the road but I think we're surviving based on what we can get by as a startup at the moment
0: Cool what type of database do you store all this stuff in
2: So a lot of the audio video kind of data we have to store just as file store, right? And kind of then there's data loaders, et cetera, that we have to do, but the raw data, uh, you can kind of just think about at the moment, just pure file storage based um,
1: at the moment.
0: Nice, okay. Um, and do you use like TensorFlow or uh, how are you actually uh, you know, yeah, we, computing we, all we, this? Uh,
2: we've, we've, I think unanimously, a lot of the research community has said goodbye to, to TensorFlow. PyTorch is in. We use PyTorch. Um, I think uh, Facebook's been doing really well. Uh, maybe not cor- corporate-wise, but definitely open source. Uh, they've been doing really good research, open sourcing, a lot of it. That's definitely pushing the boundary for a lot of people.
1: Um, why Why yeah. is that,
0: though? Why is, uh, why is PyTorch winning out over TensorFlow? I, I, I see TensorFlow, yeah, more on the corporate side, and I see PyTorch more on the academic side, but... Uh, like why why PyTorch and do you think PyTorch is the long term winner or what do you think uh, about the two?
2: Yeah, I think you know performance upkeep, uh, open source push that is always going to win out in the future, and that's I think what everybody is talking about. Uh, even when you look at some of the other models, like even when you talk about something like OpenAI, which but uh, TensorFlow
0: is open source, right? I mean, it, OpenAI uses TensorFlow.
2: Right, right. But it, it, I think it more depends on how much activity someone has. So, for example, if Facebook is using, uh, is the pioneer for PyTorch and they're doing really kick-ass work in open source and doing a lot of good academic research and they're open sourcing that, then that community will continue to grow. Um, and I think, uh, this is a general principle for any AI system or framework over time. Uh, like I don't know if you recently saw Google's paper. That they published, I think it was an internal leaked memo where they were saying, uh, neither we nor open AI has any moat, just pointing to how rapidly open source is growing and the power of open, uh, open source. Mm. They described the entire timeline of when GPT came out, when models like llama, alpaca, et cetera, came out to now things like, you know, we're, we're, we're in Dubai right now. So TII just launched Falcon out of Abu Dhabi. So, Open source will always win uh, just because of the sheer volume of people and the expertise of so many people going into it. And, and I do feel that any framework um, that has a higher kind of open source push will, will win out in the long term. So you're end.
0: saying PyTorch is more open source than... Uh, I mean, I, I, I think TensorFlow, Google created that in their Google brain or whatever lab back in 2010 or 2011. Yeah. And they open sourced it in 2015, right?
2: right so they i mean there there's a few frameworks now like pytorch tensorflow jax i think at the moment it's just a given how open source has grown and given how acad- academia has grown and given several factors on performance and such as well pytorch has just seen a rapid rise and i do think that it's it's a lot because Perhaps of Meta and Facebook because of the work they've been doing. I mean, we really don't see a company that is as aggressive as publishing as they are. Um, and with the hmm. with the kind of work they're doing more and more, it, it only makes sense that it, it's very explainable why people would want to choose a PyTorch over something like TensorFlow. You really don't hear about the best,
1: baddest models coming out in TensorFlow anymore.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting because when I think of AI, I think of, um like the leaders being open AI and Google. Uh, I don't think of Facebook as being in the lead, yeah. but uh, it's from everything you're saying, it sounds like you're kind of leaning towards Facebook being the lead. Like talk to me about how Facebook's like, how are they yeah. in the lead other than open sourcing PyTorch and, you know, doing some stuff open in the open yeah. source community. What are they like, what are they doing in their own products and, and what are they doing to commercialize the use of this technology?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great question to talk about. So Here's the cool thing right with with open source i think the general sentiment is iterations and mess ups are more allowable like you can publish something open source that has a lot of bugs and is breaking and gets better over time it can be good but it won't be perfect and there's a general understanding in the community that things will get better over time But let's say if Meta productized the same thing, right? uh, They'd be under fire, right? I mean, wow, this just doesn't work. It's crappy. Like if if you take the same kind of technology but try to productize it, they're going to be a lot under fire. But you take the same thing and open source it, uh, there's going to be a lot more relaxation being like, wow, okay, they're really open sourcing their stuff. They're really contributing. They're being super nice about it. So um, I think... I think Facebook, I don't know, I can't speak to their internal corporate strategy or anything, but I think where they're winning is definitely taking a lot of their research and fast tracking it, not through product, but fast tracking it through open source. And as they continue to do that, at least in academia and research, they will be the winners in at least attracting the kind of talent that they want for some of the serious specific stuff. I can give you an example. For CAMBI, it's very hard for me to go to a Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, or MIT, as counterintuitive it might be, me being from one of these schools and being like, I really want to find a kick-ass machine learning engineer who will just do it, right? The way I hired for CAMBI is actually open source, determining who's really working on speech, who's working on language and seeing how much they're contributing to open source, how active they are, right? That's really the measure of how much, and of course, how much someone is publishing. That's really the measure of how, how good someone is rather than, okay, a generic machine learning engineer from a top tier school, right? And so I think Meta would potentially win out in attracting very specific talent in the open source community for very specific kind of research as they continue to open source. I think as per leaders, I think having the lead and leadership in, in AI is going to be a very, very um, kind of temporary uh, existence of sorts. Like Right now, we know OpenAI is, quote-unquote, the leader because of how hyped up chat GPT is. But again, at the same time, if you see the timeline of progress in other types of LLMs that other people are um, kind of using, how people are using open source LLMs to fine tune on their own data sets and get even better performance. I see a world where the AI layer will become more and more democratized. And it's really more the product layer or what kind of data you have and how much access you have to hardware that will become a differentiator. Um, And that's essentially what uh, Google leaked in their internal memo, talking about how, uh, you know, open source is eating them up. And in the long term, it's going to be very hard for them to keep up with development and in the AI space unless they start open sourcing more of their technology.
0: um, Well, it's interesting. I mean, Google was the original pioneer of this. I mean, TensorFlow was like the OG you know, framework for, yeah. for AI and they were the creators. Like, I think Google has been, a, has been at the lead of this charge for a long time. Uh, and, and then you brought up that point about like how data, like I think you're right. I think the technology here, it's like everything, man. Like operating systems, uh, exactly. you know, we have Linux, like the kernel, we have, you know, all the packages, the package managers, the languages, the frameworks, you know, all that stuff gets open source. Like only the very top layer, like the actual product itself gets commercialized and everything else below the surface is all uh, open source. I had Taylor Outwell on the show a few episodes ago. Uh, He's the creator of Laravel. And we Uh were talking a lot about open source and kind of like the history. We talked about like like Richard Stallman and like Linus Torvalds and some of the early pioneers of open source uh, and kind of like how all this stuff over time, like the the systems, the packages, the frameworks, the languages all lean towards being open source and that's like even like big companies like AWS and Google Cloud platform like these big cloud environments are all built on open source hypervisors and open source you know uh operating systems and you know packages and all that stuff networking protocols so uh you know it's it's interesting i i, I do agree i think all this stuff is going to continue to be more and more open source at the framework level but i do think that the ways it's going to be, be commercialized is that people will build products that have deep rooted feature sets in AI capabilities. And then the other piece you touched on, which I love is the models, the data. Yeah. And I think yep. that there'll be a concept in the future of like a mass, like we have SAS, we have pass, we have, you know, all this stuff. I think we'll have mass models as a service where you <laughs> yeah. can- I mean, uh, you're,
2: you're starting to see that as well. I think some of the leaders in the AI space who are creating their own foundational models, their strategy is to take a foundational model and either open source it or provide it as an API, very much like we want to do with our foundational models, which is the right strategy in the long term for us as a business, more both from an adoption standpoint and attracting great talent. right? And one of the things that when we talk about product also is very important. So I think naively when somebody from corporate who does not have the understanding of, perhaps the exact understanding of how important open source is, but them, it looks like, oh, wow. Okay. Open source means that if I open source my technology, I'm giving it away. Uh, I'm not going to have any moat. Uh, tomorrow, anybody's going to be able to do this. Right. And that might not be true for big tech, of course, but um, for any other company, that might just be the more traditional way to think about it. Like, why would I give away my technology for free? But the, the, the interesting on the flip side there is. It is very, very hard to productionize just an open source model, right? Sure, you can develop on it. It might be easy to do some early experimentation on it. But as we talked about, let's say, you know, we open sourced our foundational models. They would provide great APIs and great um, kind of systems to do uh, language translation, et cetera. But being able to create an end-to-end AI dubbing system like CAMBI Requires a lot of knowledge of also productionizing the system and also handling all of these edge cases that actually make it a product, like cross-lingual time sync, background score preservation, multiple speakers. So, I think it's it's kind of like a two-sided sword. Uh, open source gives you like a little bit of a cheese for everybody to come around and 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 see and gather around. But at the end of the day, yes, and it does grow from that. But at the end of the day. Only when you have the technical know-how to actually productionize this, only when you have customer understanding, only when you have product understanding, will you be able to make these models and this technology useful, um, which I think is a big part that people miss out or don't factor in uh, when they're when they're thinking about open source and and taking it and building a business. There,
0: there's all sorts of interesting ways to open source stuff. Like uh, I know a guy here in Philly, Jake Stein, uh, he has a new startup. He, he's done like a few big startups. Uh you might know RJ Metrics, which sold to Magento, which is now Adobe. And then uh there's another one, uh Stitch Data, which uh spun out of RJ Metrics and that sold to a private equity, I think, in London. Uh both of those were his company. So Stitch Stitch did the are you familiar with Stitch?
1: No, I'm not.
0: Uh it's like an ETL platform. So you can do uh like kind of like automate your ETL layer stuff like for you know data warehousing. So you sure. can pull in data from like, you know, your ERPs and your, you mm-hmm. know, e-commerce platforms and your marketing, pl- you know, HubSpot, like mm-hmm. all your different platforms. They have like, you know, a few hundred yeah. integrations and the platform itself, like the kind of like the compute layer, sort of like the like the GCP or the AWS part of it in the data store. Yeah. They sold that as a SaaS, but the actual mm-hmm. integrations themselves, like the actual individual ETL integrations, they open sourced all of it. Mm-hmm. and let the community help them maintain it so okay. they obviously did a lot of work on maintaining all the integrations but then the community also helped maintain the integrations um, oh, and yeah. then they get like donations and stuff like that to continue maintaining it uh they yeah. sold that company His new company common paper is doing the same thing but in the legal niche where uh sort mm-hmm. of like what angel list did with open sourcing the um they kind of like codified the uh special purpose vehicle and the uh like the the fund management, uh, with, uh, kind of, you know, like instead of doing all this manual paperwork, they just kind of sort of like programmatically did what, you know, what you need to do to spin up a fund and get LPs and have a GP manage the fund and then deploy the funds to startups. Like they did all Mm -hmm. that in a tech platform. That's what common paper is doing now for like legal contracts, like NDAs and, you know, operating agreements and like, you know, uh, MS master services agreements and all this stuff so they have a team of all these lawyers that are coming in and like advising on what the Mm -hmm. open source languages should be and they're basically trying to recreate the standards for contracts Mm -hmm. and then codifying it into a platform which they're selling what they're going to be selling is the e-signature platform Mm -hmm. so it'll compete with like DocuSign or PandaDocs Mm -hmm. or something but you know, DocuSign and Panadocs are just the e-signature platform. You still need to bring your own contracts and have your own okay. lawyer. That's smart. Whereas this will be like, all right, sign up for the platform. We do the e-signature, but now also like we're gonna be the lawyer for you. Like essentially, yeah. like we're you know, we're gonna create the standards for contracts. So now all you need to do is just say, All right, I want an NDA. And then it'll just be like an interface where it says, like, all right, you know, it'll ask you questions like, Do you need this? Do you need that? Do you need this? And right. then you just kind of hit the answers and then it just gives you the contract. Like the finished piece right. of right. the contract is filled in. It's all codified right into the platform. And uh, so that's like that kind of stuff, you know, you're not going to like, if, if you want to build that into your platform and not have it be open sourced, you have to go hire a whole team of lawyers that have all these different be, niche yeah. specialties and, You know, who knows how, who the hell, who knows how the hell that much that's going to cost. But by open sourcing it, you kind of like you're inviting people to come into this, like all these lawyers to come into this advisory council that sort of oversees like these, the future of contracts. Uh And also you're kind of creating this, this standard, like by doing this, you can create the standard, like how Linux has created the standard for open source operating systems and everything that is built on top of Linux and all the different flavors and packages and frameworks and everything. That has come on top of Linux. Linux has kind of created the standard now for like operating systems. Whereas, like you know, I guess this is what Jake's trying to do with contracts and creating the standard for what contracts should be in the future, and then the platform to you know execute them. So uh, yeah, I-, I love the idea. Like it, 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 do- it's not like intuitive, especially to like an old school business person. Like open source isn't intuitive necessarily.
1: Yeah,
0: no. just like off the shelf, but. uh you know, if it's used properly, there's so many, like, excellent use cases for open source. And, yeah, you know, we wouldn't, like, our our life wouldn't be what it is without open source. Like, this, just, like, society, uh, you know, everything as we know it today is so fundamentally rooted, rooted in open source. Like, just even, like, things as simple as watching TV or, like, paying for your parking at a parking lot or, like, you know, a- everything. Like, everything is built on open source. Satellites, you know putting rockets into space, like everything has open source technology in it.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, 100%. And yeah, I think, you know, it's it's interesting to see what the future of of talent and hiring will be as well through open source, which is something I always think about as more of these traditional places where a traditional company would go and hire. How is that going to change over time when the people who are actually doing stuff actually exists in the open source community. Um, and that's as we're scaling CAMBI, that's one of the the problems or kind of like more of the ethos uh, questions that we have. Should we should we go to the Stanford's or Carnegie Mellon's and hire a fresh grad? Or should we hire somebody out of maybe a place nobody has heard about, but has been making 20 pull requests to this repo that we use every day, right? Um, that's so, a smart strategy. Yeah,
0: I, I uh, think that's really smart.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's like Moneyball. Uh, so that's that's what we we think we has paid off, and we have built a really really sharp team in just kind of looking for hidden gems in the open source community.
0: That's cool. H- how old are you, man? By the way,
2: uh, I turned twenty five a few months ago.
0: This is so cool, man. I, I I'm wondering like if this is. If this interview would be like, if I interviewed Larry Page and Sergey Brin in like
2: 1997. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I mean, you're doing some you cool shit. That. That's for sure. You, you say that. But just a quick aside, my past company, we actually, what, I, what we built was Slingshot Ahead. And it was a Techstars funded company. And the goal was to basically scout the LeBrons of tech. So I grew up as this CS nerd wanting to code and, and build stuff. And there was never like a, an FC Barcelona camp that I could go to. Or there was never like a, kind of like I could never do anything with it, if you know what I mean, right? There was not a structured program that could really accelerate me to be what Messi was at 14, 15, right? And I've always wondered when I was growing up, why wasn't that? Like I saw a lot of my friends become like these superstar singers or... They went into these cricket leagues when I was growing into growing up in India. Um, and so that's what I wanted to create, but for tech. And we found these 16, 17 year olds from like the remotest parts of the world who now work, uh, at like YC companies and even have YC companies of their own, basically creating, uh, like sports scouting, but for tech, tech prodigy. So. I've been kind of desensitized to the fact when I see a 12-year-old and he's like yeah I'm using the GPT-4 to you know make like a million dollars every two months uh the the whole the whole societal shift is going towards younger and younger people who have now grown up in a world where you know maybe maybe in the past decade as easy as it was to pick or, pick up a soccer ball and start playing with it now we're in an age where like kids are picking up Computers and coding, right? And so, yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, there's I definitely
0: do... signals for that sort of thing. I mean, if you go back and you look at like, you know, if you read the biography of Bill Gates or Zuckerberg yeah. or like Elon Musk, like there was clearly signals that they were gonna be like, you know, yeah. mega uh, tech influencers and mega like business creators right. in the future.
2: Right. And and my my theory back then was just like, you know, we're trying so hard to really find who might be in the next ronaldo uh, who might be in the next messi which has its place in society i mean don't get me wrong like sports sports is amazing it's like has a place in our society um and 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 that's that's all great but at the same time we should be equally curious who might be the next elon musk and we should be as aggressive as hunting for that person or that or that person like as we are for finding finding the next music superstar or sports superstar in, in these like early years. Um and and I've seen that like now there's so many platforms popping up for like teenage founders or young, young founders. And I'm generally maybe I'm because I'm still associated with such communities, I see it more and more. But I, I definitely see younger and younger people coming into entrepreneurship quicker and quicker and tech entrepreneurship as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean there's kids still in high school doing pretty Pretty cool shit, man. I mean, even even here in Philly, I'm I'm uh, a volunteer at this place called uh, HopeWorks in Philly. I actually, just I think the last episode, no, two episodes ago, was Dan Roden, who's the CEO of HopeWorks, and basically it's like you know pulling kids out of really uh, under underserved neighborhoods and communities of Philadelphia and the suburbs of Philly, like in Camden, New Jersey, where it's like extreme poverty and just a lot of like you know generations of trauma uh in in the the people living there and uh you know i've like there's just one kid that i'm i'm working with right now like hel- helping him out with his business and he's still in high school he's literally like buying vending machines and putting them all over philadelphia and he's like making wow. money already <laughs> i'm like dude this is so awesome that like you know the kids in high like you know young adults uh, you know i i guess you call him uh he's eight, i think he's 18 but i guess it's so awesome that like young adults are out there doing shit like that, man, like in high school
1: still.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think I really want to stay close to whatever business I build, either in the past, present or future. I strongly believe that I want to remain very close to accessibility because it's just a great kick when you're able to find like the best people in places that nobody else is looking, right? Whether that's through access or just raw talent. Uh, And that just gives me a kick. Uh, Slingshot had the very same theme. I think Cambi has a very similar theme. Whatever I do next will likely have the same kind of theme uh, just because of what that motivates me to do and feel.
0: Cool, cool. Uh, So, what happened with Slingshot? Did you sell the company or? uh... Yeah,
2: so over time, me being a pure technologist, uh, it became more of an HR business, so to say, very heavy on ops. And I was a comp sci grad, a comp sci grad out of Carnegie Mellon, right? So I learned a lot of stuff uh, through Slingshot: business management, uh, product development, things that I never learned in school. Um, and we did quite well with it. But over time, it made sense for us to um, kind of give it in the hands of somebody who was more uh, experienced with real, like ops and and HR and and all that stuff. Um, so we exited out a pretty small exit. Um and that's when I kind of started my journey with with Cambi. Slingshot's community is still open, uh, and I remain part of it, continue to remain part of
1: it. But uh, yeah, that's that's what we did with that.
0: That's cool. And yeah, I'm just, I have your LinkedIn pulled up, man. You have like a pretty epic uh, history. Like obviously you've mentioned Carnegie Mellon. That was uh, your your uh, you know school, university you went to. You were like interning at Brown University and you interned at Intuit and Microsoft. And uh, you, uh, you did something at Techstars. I'm not sure what that was. Touch on that a little bit. And then you're an ML AI engineer at Apple working on Siri. Uh yeah. I actually I, I want to touch on Apple and Siri a little bit sure. because Apple sure. seems to be like behind the curve with uh with like AI and I want to I want to learn from you a little bit more why you, why you think that. I think we talked about that a little bit the other day. Uh-huh. Uh but yeah, it, impressive background. You you've done you've done a lot uh in the last, you know, decade or so.
2: Yeah, I I appreciate it. I think uh where it all started was when I was growing up in India like I mentioned um I saw a lot of people excelling at different things that I didn't want to do or I didn't want to do or nor I was good at. I was good at programming stuff, but not a lot of people around me really knew about it or cared enough about it. And so the only way I could learn and get better was through the internet. Um And that's just how I built everything. That's how I found opportunities even very earlier on. Um And I think it was just a blessing in disguise that put in the hustle in me from earlier on where I was like, you know, I just, if I see something online, I need to try it out. It's a hackathon. It's an internship. I'm going to DM as many people as possible. I'm just going to keep trying. Um, and it was, I guess, like a life-changing moment for me when I got into Carnegie Mellon as an international student. I think like five or six people from the country got in and I was one of them. And I think from there, my my entire life changed. Like, you know, I went to CMU. I met these awesome professors, some of which are like, like really created the bare bones of what computer science is and machine learning is. Um, then I did all these like internships and I, I started working at Apple. Apple was my first job out of uh, Carnegie Mellon. And I joined Apple specifically, actually, for that reason, Um, because I believe that Apple was... Is a kind of company that is behind the curve. And I wanted to be part of something that I could really grow in quickly. And so when I interviewed and I, and I got into uh, a team within Siri, their AI ML group, uh, I was really hyped because from my perspective, I was joining a team that was trying to ride the upward curve in AI ML. I looked at, like you mentioned, like Google and Facebook right at kind of the top and where a person like me would be i guess yes one of many still at apple but one of many 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 more at google and 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 facebook and stuff apple traditionally being a hardware company was just coming into ai and has just been coming into ai ever since it started with siri and and later on so i wanted to be part of something that was just growing and about to to grow um and I spent time there. Unfortunately, like I, I decided to leave after a bit, although I, I think I had a lot of fun working there. Um, from what I, I, mean, I think it goes back to the same point that we were discussing of what has Apple behind the curve. I think there's really two reasons. One, it might seem that they're behind the curve when they're not really. when they might be working on some really cool shit that even I as an employee wouldn't know about. Uh, or 500 people working there wouldn't know about. They are very closed doors about the technology they create, and for good good reason. Um, I think Apple has been a pioneer in technology for a long time, um, but it's definitely, from an AI perspective, not as public as it could be, and I don't think it will ever be, which is why, going back to that same argument, I think the more closed you are in the AI age, the more definitely at least perception of you being behind will be more and more. And that will become a reality if, if it's a perception
1: for long enough. Um,
0: interesting. So think- interesting. Yeah. I mean, Apple is definitely, they've always historically been super secretive Yeah. and uh, interesting. So that, so the perception that they are behind, even if they're technically not behind the perception of the public that they're behind. You're saying will lead to them actually being behind just because people don't believe they're ahead.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, let, let's think about some of the best college graduates who um, are vying for the top companies. I mean, four out of five times they might be at the Google and the OpenAI. they that have a preference for the OpenAI and Google rather than the Apple just because of the public perception or how the, these companies um, are demonstrating their technology. But I think. Apple might not necessarily need to win in the AI sphere or from a even business strategy. I mean they have a ton of other cool stuff that they can very easily win on uh, it, We're gonna see what happens very soon with their with their next conferences and their next announcements uh, but uh, some of the technology that people have been talking about potentially in VR AR uh, could be they lying the foundations or laying the foundations of whatever that kind of world will continue to grow. Uh, Metaverse was, I think, uh, you know, it's it's still, I guess, a huge deal. It was Everybody was talking about it, not so much right now, but it is definitely going to be one of the other things alongside AI that is going to continue to grow. And it's quite possible that they want to exist in that sphere and, you know, just maintain what they're good at uh, or what the public thinks they're good at, which is hardware. and creating awesome like stuff that you can really hold in your hand or experience. Right. And yeah, I mean, over time, like sure, they will still have amazing AI engineers, amazing research, which can more trickle into their hardware offerings or their devices or anything that they build. And they might not necessarily even need to win in the kind of AI wars.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So I was listening to, um, listening to the acquired podcast the episode about amazon web services uh the other day uh is this follow-up to the amazon.com episode they did uh check it out all the listeners if you haven't uh listened to that podcast and that episode great episode uh jeff bezos is like a beast but uh I digress. Uh, one of the things they were talking about was that, you know, Amazon obviously innovated the cloud space with AWS and then Google and Microsoft followed and, you know, it, in in the order of market share, you have Amazon, Microsoft, Google and the cloud cloud market space. And then the, the rest is like five or 10 percent. That's like everything else, like DigitalOcean and Linode and all the other players out there. Uh, but why you know so Facebook kind of has a couple things. They have like a platform as a service. I forget if they still support that or not. But uh, you know, Facebook has a little bit of stuff. They've innovated a little bit in their own you know cloud computing uh, for internal use. But uh, like one of the things they talked about in the episode was why Amazon or sorry why Apple hasn't done anything in the cloud space. And uh, they were they kind of uh, postulated that you know Apple is is very much a hardware company and they're very much a consumer sales company like they don't understand enterprise sales they've never done enterprise sales even like if you try to and I've experienced this myself because I buy a lot of apple hardware for my employees at Curotech mm-hmm. and it's like you know basically when you try to call up apple to like purchase a large order they're just like oh yeah just like go into the store and just buy you know just have like 10 or 20 macbook pros shipped to the store and mm-hmm. you know King of Prussia Pennsylvania and just go pick them up like they don't really have like enterprise sales so uh it's interesting uh that you know Apple just like they're still very much like a consumer product company almost like you know they're like a luxury consumer goods company like you know something like like Porsche or uh you know like um Louis Vuitton or you know something like that like they kind of operate like those types of businesses sure. and even their stores if you go to the mall they're always their stores are right next to like you know the Tesla store or the or yeah. the uh, Louis Vuitton store or whatever. Like they're always in the same part of the mall too.
2: Right, right. And I mean, I think as much as they have established themselves as a premier brand uh, or a premium brand, um, I think over time, if they remain a hardware slash consumer company, they will probably go down lower market to be more accessible to you know people who have been using the Androids of the world. I don't know if you've heard Elon Musk trying to launch his own kind of phone that'll apparently compete with the Apple phone but will be way cheaper or something. But I think if they <laughs> if they really? remain in this space. Yeah, I think I think that I heard maybe it's fake news. Who knows these days, but I think they were they were talking about him and and Samsung doing something and him launching like a Tesla phone or something
1: like that.
0: Um well this is interesting. So I just I'm I'm checking like what are the obviously Apple's been like the largest company in the world. So they're doing something, right? They've been the largest company in the world for a yeah. while now. They have like hundreds of billions of dollars in reserves. They're two point six trillion dollar, two point six five trillion dollar market cap. Mm-hmm. freaking insane, man. I, I don't know how you ever grow into that valuation, but holy shit. Yeah. I, I
1: know. So, uh, I, think,
2: I think somebody would have to remain the Apple of the world, right? If that makes sense. As Google and OpenAI, Microsoft, all push towards cloud and AI, you'll need to have somebody who is who's the hardware device king of the world. Yeah. And that might continue to just be Apple, whether that's phones, laptops, VR headsets, or whatever else we see in the future. Um,
0: Dude, check out so- this list, man. Uh, it's from Invest- Investopedia. Um, Apple, number one largest company in the world, $2.65 trillion market cap. Uh, You're in Dubai right now, Saudi Aramco, number two, (laughs) uh, $2.33 trillion market cap, second largest company in the world. Number three is Microsoft, $2.1 trillion market cap, third largest company in the world. Number four is Google, Alphabet, uh, $1.54 trillion. Five is Amazon, $1.42 trillion. Six is Tesla. 910 measly 910 billion. <laughs> uh, seven Berkshire Hathaway, 644 billion. Eight is Nvidia. I think they're going to come out of the uh the woodwork here and become a massive player in the future uh, because they're they're leading the the hardware space for AI. But they're 457 billion right now. I bet you they'll pass a trillion this year or next year.
1: 100. Uh,
0: Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, number nine, they're 456 billion number 10 meta at $449 billion. So super interesting, man. Like the top 10 companies in the world, there's like one oil company and like one, you know, Berkshire Hathaway. They're like an investment company, but uh, they own a bunch of companies. They, don't, they they own a lot of Apple. I think they own, you know, like sure. 10% of their portfolio is Apple. So that's probably why they're even on this list. But uh, they, um, you know, th- this list is like all tech companies. Largest companies in the world.
1: Yeah. And And a lot of them are pretty new.
0: I mean, you know, Apple Apple's old. Microsoft is old. But like Google, like they came out in 96 or 98. Amazon came out in 96. Tesla came out in what, 2010 or
1: 2008?
0: Uh, Meta, yeah, they came out in 2004. So like a lot of the companies on this list are like around 20 years old or less. So it's crazy. Right, Uh,
1: right. Right. Crazy, crazy. Yeah.
2: We might see a very different list very quickly because I think, like you touched upon with NVIDIA, as the AI layer software, all of that becomes open source and more democratized. It will be about who has data, who can productionize stuff, and who has access to hardware. That's going to be... I think I see
1: that being the next oil. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, NVIDIA, Um, they're on like a, a stock price burn right now with uh you know they just like crushed their earnings reports last last quarter and uh and it's because everyone's trying to you know there's like a line out the door to buy these freaking gpus so people can train their models you got yours you're training yours right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah.
2: that's i I think that's going to be the big big next play that's going to be the bottleneck and that's what nvidia is going to win at
0: yeah cool um what didn't I touch on? Uh, there's something else I wanted to ask you. Uh, I love what you're doing, man. I think you're gonna really like take off with uh, with everything you're working on. Uh, obviously, like you're clearly brilliant. Uh, I can tell you're you're a hustler. Uh, how how many hours do you work per day? Like how how many uh, or per week? Like how what what's like your your week look like in terms of working?
2: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I. Try to remain very structured with my life because, uh, I know that if you do, do go too overboard, you're not going to get work done anyway. You're going to start becoming lazy. You're going to, you never want to be in the place where you start disliking the love of your life kind of thing, something that you put your blood, sweat and tears into. So the way I try to organize my time is just if I have like a hundred things to do every week, I will just literally Instead of having like a task management system, I'll just block out times on my calendar to get that done. And I, I am like a robot of my calendar, but it does keep me very organized. And surprisingly, it does give me enough time to, to sleep, eat and do whatever else I want to do. Um, so, so I, you,
0: you work I, like 40 hours, 60 hours, 80 hours.
2: I, I would, I would say it's between the 60 to 80 range. So it's not like very, very crazy.
0: Uh, you're not sleeping on a dog bed under your desk like elon musk <laughs> not, yet. <laughs> not yet
2: i think maybe soon as we continue to scale hopefully uh we have the the opportunity to do that
0: that's cool <laughs> um all right what one last thing i wanted to touch on it just came back to me uh, so you're in dubai right now you mentioned that earlier uh yeah. just raised your seed round do you want to talk at all about that like what's what's next for Camb AI you know i don't know if you want to share any metrics on your seed round super interested to hear about uh yeah. you know you talked a lot about like the sovereign wealth fund in, in uh in uh, the middle east and that's there's a yeah. lot of money pumping into startups and ai tech uh, would yeah. love to just hear on that hear about that a little bit
2: sure yeah 100% i think um picking back on one of the points that we mentioned about democratized access to ai and such i think while Silicon Valley is going to remain Silicon Valley for a long time, uh, there's many, many other regions of the world that are growing very quickly in AI and the adoption for it. The Middle East and particularly Dubai and UAE happens to be one of them. I mean, literally we're talking about one, the best open source large language model coming out of Abu Dhabi, out of like a research institute that nobody heard of. It just goes to show like the seriousness and like the amount of, uh, kind of funding and uh, an effort that is going towards AI in this region. I was actually at NVIDIA's conference in um, in Dubai very recently, um, and they were talking about the the need and the value of the Middle East um, and their growth in AI, especially with the kind of capital they have and the resources they have. Um, so yeah, we we are based out of uh, Dubai. We we're a U.S. Delaware C corp, but we have technically an office in. In US and and Dubai uh gives us a very nice uh kind of play with talent because literally Middle east is four hours away from everywhere else most most parts of the world here um so that's why we've been able to effectively build a remote team um and you know find these hidden gems like I mentioned uh as for Cambi, uh you know we as we've been building our technology we've had a very unique opportunity to work with some of the largest names uh, across the globe uh, in Canada, North America, generally, um, Middle East and and India. Um, we are kind of working with both enterprises and individual creators at the moment. And uh, yeah, um, we we just raised our uh, kind of seed round that's closing up a uh, $4 million seed round. Um, and uh,
1: yeah, we're close. Pretty to good complete. seed round.
2: Yeah, pretty decent. Uh, I think this gives us a good runway, uh, and good opportunity to bring on board some very, very serious talent, uh, have the right hardware and infrastructure in place to, to realize our dream of becoming the, the local. When did you
0: close that seed round? Uh,
2: so we're, we're still in process of closing it. We're around uh, 80 to 90% committed. Uh, so we're still closing it up, but we have commitments from some pretty big names that I can't fully mention right now, but uh, yeah, uh, hopefully soon enough, you'll be able to to see us uh, and uh,
1: cheer cheer for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I actually I I would love to have you back on the show, maybe like a year from now, just to kind of check in and see where you're at. Uh, I don't don't know. Maybe maybe I won't be able to get a slice of your time. And uh, no, no, don't say that. You'll be sleeping (laughs) on the dog bed at that point.
2: Unless, unless I'm asleep. Yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) That's so cool, man. Uh, I I love everything you're doing. Uh, super, super exciting stuff here. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited for this episode to come out.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me on Brian. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else you want to close on before we, uh, shut this down?
2: No, I think that's, that's it. Uh, you know, I've been watching your podcast. It's just a very humbling and very unique experience to also be on one. So just. Thank you for the opportunity and to everybody who's listening I think we're moving into a very very exciting time of everybody's lives in in AI and uh I think to whoever whoever's like you know thinking about AI uh just know it's a great time to to put your to put yourself in this space I think what I've been reading and hearing more and more is that AI is not going to replace anybody but people who know AI uh, understand it or are able to work with it effectively are going to be the leaders of the future and i just do encourage people to um, learn as much as they can um, be on podcasts like these and, and kind of other places where they can learn
1: everything and anything about how this world is and how.
0: yeah i wholeheartedly agree with that uh ak thank you so much for coming on man that's that's the thank episode you.